So now we're going to do what this means is we just have to think the meaning. It's a Tibetan tradition, you know, like thousand-year-old tradition. We've got to know the meaning. If there's no meaning, don't do it. I can't describe this enough. If there's no meaning, don't do it. So the meaning here is, you know, this mandala. Mandala, you know, you see those pictures, those round drawings. Everyone loves mandalas, you know. They're just, all they are is an architectural drawing. Certainly in the Vajrayana, they're an architectural drawing of the abode of the different Buddhas. That's all they are, you know. And so... Um, this mandala we're offering here, though, is the man is like is our abode, the abode of us human beings. So now, if you look at the words of this prayer, when we said this prayer, we said the long prayer. It's like hilarious. It's like science fiction. You know, who you didn't learn in geography, did you? That Mount Meru was in the middle of the universe, and you certainly did not learn in geography that our sky is blue because it's reflecting off lapis lazuli. I mean, guess what? So we don't worry about that. We don't know about all these Buddhist cosmological ideas. You just think of all the marvelous things. You just use your creative imagination. And you think of all the marvelous things in the world that make people happy and you pile them up. And then you think of offering this to the Buddha as a request for the teachings. I mean, when you go a place, you don't go empty handed, do you? You never go empty handed. You wouldn't go to the ice cream shop and ask for an ice cream but not give money. You wouldn't go to a party and not bring, you know, BYO. You'd bring your bottle or something. It's just so it's auspicious to give in order to receive. That's how we're thinking, okay? And then we can do our little mandala. Now, we didn't get it right for Nana yesterday, but if you know it, that's good. A little kind of, like I said, a Buddhist mandala represents the universe. Two, you see the two, my two ring fingers poking up. That's Mount Meru. And then these two, these here and these two other two, That this is the four continents because there are four continents, you see. And we're in the southern one. So nevertheless, let's go. And um, Jason will sing the prayer in Tibetan. Or he can chant it in English, but I think he likes singing it in Tibetan. Let him do what he wants. You can tell. <laughs> okay, we'll but do it. Now that we're on, now we're on the case. You should, when you look at the word, go down a bit, and you look at the word. When they have these umlauts on words, you know, look at the word uh, down there. The second line of the second prayer. It's ku. Ku. Ku, not kui. The okay. I. Don't ask me what the I does, but it's ku. Ku. Chirku. Maybe it's chirki. No, it's chirku. I think. That's right. That's it. But anyway, we don't know what the Tibetan means. I don't speak Tibetan. And uh, if you're really going to be a good umza, you should start like this. You should go, like that. That's how you start. And then you sing the prayer. Just letting us know it's the beginning. So then we can join in. Go on. Shukshing mehetok, Trahamri rabbling jin yehide yehen padi, Sang yehe jing du mikte uhua, Yehidro kuhunam dak. Jing la chhe pa sho jet suhun la ma dam pa kye nam ki cho ku ka la Jita ha sa ham pe du che zi 
And now we imagine the Buddha very happily receiving our offering. That's it. And then I'll say the next one. I'll say it in English. I'll say the meaning in English and I might sing it in Tibetan. And we'll say it in English. I'll say it a little bit exaggerated. I'll say it extra words first and we'll just say the words that are there. So we're saying until we think this, think this hard, you know, if this makes sense to us, until we're enlightened, we are going to rely upon the Buddha, his teachings, and then the community of people who practice it as well. You know, this is a supreme assembly, the Sangha. Like you need the tennis coach, you need the teachings, and you need the tennis players. You can't practice on your own. You know, you got to have that's, a, that's, a, that's the Sangha. So by the, by the virtuous karmic seeds that we plant in our mind from listening to these teachings, May we become a Buddha, no matter how long it takes, so we can be a benefit to others. So I take refuge until I'm enlightened to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merits of listening to the Dharma, may I become a Buddha to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I'm enlightened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the my merits of listening to the Dharma, may I become a Buddha to benefit all sentient beings. Okay, good. So let's look at let's look at why we you know how it's logical to have compassion for the harmers this is not logical in our view in our normal world we see a person harming we think they're a monster we run to have co co compassion for the victim and to the degree that we have compassion for the victim is the degree that we have anger for the harmer that's the logic we have now because we assume there's no other logic we just we don't know why this person's out of their brain they you know maybe their mother hit them later and when they were a child that's how we think but meanwhile how dare they harm that dog how dare they beat their wife how dare they steal that money whatever it is we immediately have anger so what's the logic we have to use that that, that makes sense that we can have compassion for those people now we can't get that until we understand it for ourselves and it's actually not difficult but it's you know it's but it's surprising to us so the first level of practice in the wisdom wing which is not about the compassion wing at all the whole point that buddha's trying to make he's saying to us listen you petals listen honeys listen children listen babies you are causing yourself suffering so of course we hear about the long term you know that you do naughty things now and you're going to suffer in the future you'll be born as a cockroach or something we hear like that and then we get all kind of we either laugh or we think you know this is just punishment is i mean it sounds even worse than going to hell you know there's so many other things that buddhism is much more creative they don't just have hell they have spirits they have lord knows what kind of rebirth you know so we hear it as this heavy duty punishment but forget all that the minute forget all that the thing that is so clear that we don't get we should look at this you know is that every second that i forget even what i do with my body and speech to harm others look at what drives it i mean when you steal you're not out it's not out of compassion when you lie it's not out of compassion when you punch somebody in the nose it's not out of compassion when you you know i mean it's obvious that it's coming from someplace inside that's called aversion, jealousy, depression, fear, anxiety, all the neuroses, in other words. It's logical, you know, that we do actions with our body and speech that harm others that are driven by delusions. Now, the thing to get before we even look at the actions 
is to when we start to look into our mind and the Buddha, the, you know, this is like in the second level of the first of the wisdom wing. There's different levels. There's junior school and high school. I call it that. If you know the Lam Rim, it's called the first scope of the teachings and the, and the middle scope. And we're talking, I like to call junior school and high school. The very first level, junior school, is just back off and don't harm. Back off, control your body and control your speech. Be a good person. Don't harm others. That's it. Why? Because the long term it's going to harm you. But the thing when we start to look into our mind, what we need to look into and see so vividly, so clearly, is that the very having of anger, depression, anxiety, jealousy, attachment, the very having of those feelings and emotions is in itself unbelievable suffering. This is all Buddha's pointing out. It's really not complicated. But so why do we think it's complicated? Why can't we hear it? Well, there are various reasons. The first is, uh, the first thing, just like with when you see the person kicking the dog, the first thing you do is get, have compassion for the, you know, is get mad at the kicker. The first thing we do when some, when we have anger or jealousy or anxiety, and we, we want, we naturally, you know, we're trying to be logical. What is the reason? Well, the logic we use, which is not logic at all, is there must be something out there that caused it. I mean, this is even what we consider. This is, this is the actual, this is the actual view of our modern psychology. Buddha's not totally disagreeing. He doesn't disagree that when you're, you know, if your boyfriend is not looking at you so lovingly every day, maybe he's looking a bit mean at you, look a bit daggers at you. He doesn't disagree that that happened. But he's, and, but our trouble is we think that's the main reason for why I'm suffering. Buddha says, yeah, it plays a role. But all the way to put it, for, very simple for Buddhism, is it's a secondary cause. It's the catalyst. It's a good word. It's the catalyst. The suffering is the anger itself. This is very hard for us because then it sounds like it's the blame, you know. You mean I'm the blame. Because we are addicted to this dualistic view of being an innocent victim. This is how we think. Is that what ego? When we start to analyze the way ego functions, and this is very cruel sounding, but Lama Yeshi would say ego is self-pity me. Analyze it. That's how we feel. We feel like a victim. Don't misunderstand me. Don't think I'm trying to blame the victim. It's not, it sounds like that, you know, but listen to it carefully. Yes, the boyfriend was mean. Yes, the boss was unkind. Yes, the bank didn't give you credit. Check the thousands of things that happen in our life, which are what attachment doesn't want, which is essentially what, you know, is the, is the point. But the Buddha's point is, this is what he's trying to get us to see in this, in this, in this level of practice where we start to become our own therapist before we get anywhere near the compassion wing. Is that that is the very having of attachment itself right then, the having of anger right there, the having of the depression, the anxiety. That is where the suffering is. That is where the suffering is. And his methods are how to change that. It's the words are not complicated, but because philosophically, it's completely not what we think. So we, we would eat, we, so then, you know, we would say, but I'm allowed to be angry. Look what happened. We say that. Forget about suffering to others, you know. I mean, like, the, you know, Frances has pointed yesterday about all the things going on and she's determined to point it all out to people, all these bad things that are happening. She might be right, but forget even the things that are happening in the world. Just look at the things that happened to us. We have to blame. It's automatic. That's the way the mind goes. And then we think that's the main reason for why I'm suffering. 
<clears throat> we think, yeah, I am angry. You're right, Buddha. I am angry. And yes, the anger is terrible, I will say. But honey, Buddha, can't you see? I'm allowed to be angry. Look what happened. That's how we think. That's our philosophy. So this is not an easy thing. This is natural to us. No one taught us this. Don't blame your Jewish mummy or your Catholic mummy. This is the function of ego grasping, the root delusion, this dualistic view. So in other words, ego wants to get off the hook. I mean, it sounds brutal to talk this way. You see, Buddha's not even saying you should tell your boyfriend to change. Please ask him to change. Nothing wrong with that. If you can change him, please change him. He's not suggesting you have to sit there like a martyr and let him be mean to you. No, ask him to stop doing it. If he, and if he will, well, well done. But what if he doesn't change? What if the bank doesn't give you a loan? What if the boss is not kind to you? This is always the point. What then? What's your solution? This is the point. I mean, so I said to Julie yesterday, well, then what's your solution? Uh, but, 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 but 18 years old, I said, yeah, but what's the solution? To Francis, what's the same, you know? It's so hard to hear this because we rant and anger wants to kind of, no, 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 but, but, but. How dare, but, 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 you know? We rant, I mean, I'm saying Francis and Julia ranting and raving. I'm not saying that. I'm the one who rants and raves. Listen to me. It's my natural mode. It's hard to come to the simple point, let me look at my mind and see what I can change in there. And that means you've got to see that it's painful. It's not blame. It's not guilt. It's not getting the other person off the hook. None of that is implied, but we've got to get past that because they're the assumptions we have. And this is what's so difficult. When we can begin to see that the delusions are painful. Some people talk this way. I mean, anger has been like my second name all my life, you know, so to hear, and then I hear people say, you know, I decided one day I was never going to get angry again. I am mind boggled by that because when the habit is very deep, you can't say that, you know, when it's the habit's not so deep, you can say that. Because it's easy, the time changes, the time comes when you can change it. But it's hard, we're kind of kicking and screaming, you know, and not wanting to look at this simple fact that the anger itself, right there, is the cause of my pain. So now my point is this in relation to compassion now. Now my point is in relation to compassion. Before we go back to this one. When we can understand my, that my anger is painful, my jealousy is painful, my attachment is painful, my depression is painful, and yes, they're deep habits that I brought with me, so be kind to yourself because they take time to change, then I will see that if ever in my life I've ever done anything to harm anybody, I will see it's because of the anger and because of the anxiety, because of the depression, because of the jealousy. My body and speech will then carry out the wishes and do something mean to somebody. So when you can see that your suffering is from your own mind and that it's, yes, it is triggered by the external event. Buddha does not argue that there is an external event, but he doesn't give it so much power. And this is the part that's hard for us because as far as we're concerned the external event is the entire cause but also of our happiness that's the joke in other words we're like these complete victims that give all the power to the external person all the power to the event all the power to the object why are you happy Rabina? oh my boyfriend was so kind to me in other words he we make him a million percent the cause of my happiness which is why we grasp at him like a vampire and expect him to do it again so we blame the outside world for our happiness and we blame 
the outside world for our suffering. Buddha says it's more nuanced than that, honey. This is why I always quote the stories about my friends in prison. I mean, always this one I quote, she's a friend of mine, she's in Ireland, she's like old now, well, I mean, like my age, a bit older than me, I think. And she was in prison for 17 years on, in Florida on death row most of the time, back in the 70s, this little hippie Jewish girl with a hippie husband and hippie kids hitching in Florida, you know, and they got picked up by two blokes. I don't remember the story exactly. She's written her memoir. I think they're making a movie about her as well. And... Um, and then the, the two guys got picked up by the police and then the, and they killed and, the, and then the two guys killed the police and blamed the hippies. So basically they're on death row in Florida, you know, and if you're on death row for killing a policeman, you're about the worst monster on the planet. So there's the story, it's like, her story is like a nightmare, you know, it's like one nightmare after another. At some point, you know, she's on, she's in security, she's in top security most of the time in her own cell, 24 hours a day. Don't ask me why, but with a Bible, that's about it. Then she, she had children, so she gave them to her family, her parents. At least they were, she felt good that her children had the family, her beloved parents to take care of them. But then the parents died in a car accident, so she lost her kids to the system. Then eventually the husband got executed, and she went to the execution. She's in prison, and his head burst into flames. I mean, you can't imagine. It's like, it's like medieval days, you know, still like that. A friend of mine on death row in, in Kentucky, Mitchell, who was, you know, who was uh, sentenced in the 80s when the law was that you'd got e electrocuted, because it's now no longer legal, but because he was, he was, you know, the law says he has to be electrocuted because that was how it, when he got sentenced. So they're going to, you know, and, he, and the, one of the meetings I had with him recently, and well, a couple of years ago, actually, when I saw him in, in I went to visit him. And it's, he's like 30 years now on prison, getting close to his death date. And he's sort of trying to work out, because he's a really devoted practitioner, Mitchell. And he's try, he was in Chasing Buddha. If you've seen Chasing Buddha, he was in that. The guy with the big beard, a red, a red jumpsuit. All the death row guys wear red. In Kentucky, anyway. So anyway, he um, he was discussing with me how, because he was thinking about his death, how it's going to happen. He knows exactly how it's going to happen. They're going to walk up to him. There's a guy going to be this close to him. He's going to, you know, electrify his entire body. He's going to put wet sponges on his head. He's going to put something there. And he put a hood on his face. And then they turn on the switch, you know, and they fry him, freeze up all his bones and whatever, whatever, you know. So anyway, he was saying, he was trying to work out what was the best way to think at that time. Should I try and think of this fellow and have compassion for him? Or should I just sort of sit there and close my eyes and meditate on what I, you know, my practice, whatever he wants to think of the guru, whatever, you know. Was thinking seriously, seriously, how he could die. But he said, I'm ready for that electric jolt, Rabina. Anyway, what was I telling? Oh, yes, yeah, Sunny on death row. There she was, Sunny. So this nightmare after nightmare after nightmare happening. And she's on, on, in her own on her cell, you know, years, uh, much of the time. So you, first of all, you can't even, you can't even, even when we get slightly accused of something, look at the nightmare, the torment, the torment, you know. We cannot stop it day and night. Can you only imagine the nightmare? of her mind, you know, but at some point she said, you know, she said, I realized I had a choice to change her mind. At some point she even said, I just, she said, I finally realized that I couldn't change anything. And that's after much, much, I mean, in the beginning, you just think this is ridiculous. They're going to see we're innocent, you know, but it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Finally, she said, I realized I couldn't change anything, but they couldn't take my mind from me. So I decided 
I she wasn't a, she wasn't Buddhist. She did yoga and things, you know, and now she's not a Buddhist. She doesn't have much of a view of karma or anything. She just had this extraordinary, in my mind, like I could say, she had this extraordinarily powerful emotional intelligence that she could see this point the Buddha's telling us that, honey, if you change your mind, you can learn to be happy. You won't suffer. And that's what she proved. She said, I decided that I am not in a cave. I'm not in a cell. I'm in a cave. I'm not a prisoner. I'm a monk. So, okay, she's not living in a fantasy land. She's not pretending she's in Tibet. What she's doing is applying emptiness, which means you can label whatever you damn well like. And this is the whole teaching that's more advanced about this one, that you can relabel something. So she had this incredible, for years sitting in this cell on her own, 23 hours a day with a Bible, you know, got, learning to control her mind, learning to discipline her mind. She, in other words, she saw that anger, for example, was a nightmare. She could see that. And she changed her mind. She changed her mind from being angry to being peaceful. Now, that may, the thing is, when we hear this, we think, oh, well, she sat back completely passive and said, okay, I'm innocent. I'm going to sit here and change my mind and live in la-la land. No, she never stopped working on her freedom. But this is the interesting point. This is the added interesting point. You know, there was a fellow I read about at the same time who was also innocent, also on death row. And this is not uncommon in this country. Well, probably everywhere, you know, the, the world's a deluded place. And this guy, also innocent, he was what we would call normal. He went completely out of his brain. And in fact, he would rage daily. As long as he had a voice, he would scream. I did not rape and kill that woman. I did not rape and kill that woman. Can you only imagine his mind, if that was his words, raging out of his brain, unable to convince anybody of the truth? And the thing is, if you'd gone to him and said, well, you know what? I've got a friend, Sunny, who's in the prison down the road, and she's learned to realize she can change her mind and thus become more sane and happy. He would not have been able to hear you. Look at ourselves. We can't even hear it. And look at our suffering. So it's not an easy point that Buddha's making. It's actually intensely difficult. It's unbelievably difficult because we're eons and eons of practice, he says, in, in addicted to the dualistic view of being an innocent victim who didn't ask to get born, whose fault it is not. And when these bad things happen to me and it's not, you know, that I have no control over. So this is an incredibly difficult practice. And honey, Charles, this is middle scope. This is high school. Forget about compassion for others. So Sunny got out eventually and she's married to a fellow, an Irish guy who's also on death row in Ireland for killing two policemen during all the troubles. And he got off as well. And now they're living together in the middle of Ireland somewhere, <clears throat> helping people who get out of prison. They're amazing. But she kept her sanity. So this is when you're, it's a practical point. It's a practical point. It's not religious. That what we think is the main source of happiness and suffering. That's it. That's Buddha's point. All the way from here to Buddha, Buddha, all the way from here to Buddhahood. And it doesn't mean you don't work on the outside. It doesn't mean you don't try to change. She never stopped working on her freedom. She didn't sit there passively like an idiot. She never stopped working on her freedom. And the interesting point is this poor fellow, because he was out of his brain, had no concept that he could change his mind. He could not do anything to work on his freedom. He just sat there going crazy. But she kept her sanity and was able to never stop working on her freedom. So she was was win, win, win for her. 
I mean, it's, but it's stupendously powerful. I mean, she just the intelligence of that. And you know what I would say? The key thing that she had was she didn't have anger. This sounds, in our world in psychology, this just sounds so silly, anger. But if you look at the world, please, keep it simple. If you look at the world and look at people who harm each other, we, we're so addicted to thinking we've got to look into their psychology and look at what their mummy did and what the daddy did and what the children and what happened to them when they were five and what the church, Catholic Church did. We just don't, we don't, we, we make it so complicated. What is telling me, don't worry about what their damn mother did. Look at your mind. So she didn't have much anger. That's why she could do this. Anger is when attachment doesn't get what it wants. And it literally is a mental breakdown. Anger is a mental breakdown. Anger is that guy was having serious mental breakdowns. Now, this is not criticizing. This is having compassion. You know, like at the moment, because the, because the drug companies have found something that shifts the whatever it is inside you that, you know, when you get depression, now they call it a mental illness, all their propaganda, you know, and they make billions of dollars on drugs for um, depression. But I haven't heard anybody say that anger is a mental illness. As soon as they find a drug to help anger, suddenly all the people who get angry will be off the hook now and it'll be called a mental illness. But they're agreeing with Buddha. It is a mental illness. Anger is a mental illness. Attachment is a mental illness. You know, the word is so fascinating in Buddhist psychology. The term that Buddha uses in Sanskrit way back, way back, is the word for all these problems, for the neuroses, is the word klesha. And it's then translated in English as affliction. Well, it's a lovely word, but it's kind of arcane. We don't talk about having an affliction. So Lama Yeshi just knew back in the 70s when he first met Westerners, when I edit his books, I see this. He just knew it was a dumb word. He just knew he never used it. I'm not being rude, His Holiness uses it. Or the proper correct word is affliction for all the problems, you know, they're afflictions. And that's a good word. What's an affliction is a problem. Well, what kind of problem? It's a mental problem. The, Buddha, the, the Buddha's not talking about headaches. He's talking about mental afflictions, which is at least what Geshe Zopa, he says at least mental affliction. Well, Lama Yeshi, I came up with like in his Mahamudra book, he had 21 synonyms, most of which he'd made up to try to can get us to see the functioning of attachment, anger, jealousy, pride, etc. So you know what the, the term I like to use, and this is not wrong, this is logic for a mental problem, it's called a mental illness. Now, because that word is so vivid for us in our culture, it's so shocking to be told you've got a mental illness. It's horrifying. But this is exactly what Buddha is telling us. Attachment, anger, jealousy all of them we're all mentally ill i'm not being sarcastic even we're all mentally ill it's all a question of degree that's all now the trouble is as soon as we say that this is very fascinating as soon as we say that you're mentally ill if you're angry jealous you know then that somehow gets you off the hook you listen to this Oh, the poor thing's mentally ill. They can't help it. Well, Buddha's also agreeing that we can't help it. We're totally driven by these delusions. We are like just driven by them. We have no volition, you know, no awareness, no a clarity, just no power to change our minds. We're so driven by them. But as soon as we see someone, as soon as we say someone's mentally ill, like anybody, when you go to court, the first thing is try to find how they're mentally ill and they get off the hook. The poor things can't help it. So we don't want to say that. So when you realize yourself that you're angry, it is a mental illness. So you should have compassion for yourself. But as soon as a person punches you in the nose 
and they're angry, or, or they think he's mentally ill, he's angry, then we think, oh, well, the poor thing can't help it. Oh, we don't want to say that. We want to blame him. So we don't like the idea that we're mentally ill because it means we're, we're, we can't help it. But this is exactly what Buddha is saying. We are driven by these crazy habits, you know, these afflictions, these mental illnesses, these delusions. That's one of the words they use, delusions, disturbing emotions. So when we get, so what Buddha is trying to point out so simply is the causes of suffering. I mean, it's all laid out in the Four Noble Truths and we read it, but it's sort of like this kind of intellectual treatise. We can't hear it experientially. The Four Noble Truths are so simple. Buddha's teachings are so simple from the beginning. There are four things, he says, four, four facts, four truths, four facts, what he's found. The first is that there is suffering. And we're discussing only the first kind of suffering here. Now we're discussing two kinds of suffering. The first one, which is, we discussed the second one, and we discussed it, the suffering of change. The first one is, was here, wasn't it? Who asked that question? I get confused when I say things. Hello, Lauren, in Los Angeles. There you are, look. Hello, sweetheart. So the first one, the first kind of suffering is when the bad things happen, is when you get, you know, and the second one is the suffering. The second kind of suffering is the delusions, the delusions, particularly attachment. It's so simple. There are two main causes of our suffering, past actions and our delusions. Oh, it's a cause of my suffering, is it? How interesting. I hadn't thought of that. We can't hear it. It's so complicated. We make it complicated. So the point is what we should get from that is compassion for ourselves. But we get blame and guilt. Oh, you mean I'm the blame? That's how we think. This is the deluded views we have. And these are the function of ego. So when you can start to realize you're suffering, you're, and that means you want to become sick of your anger and sick of your jealousy and sick of your depression, but to get to that point, it's already like reversing the energy of a bomb. Instead of continually talking about what your mother did and what your father did and what the Catholic nuns did and what they did and what he did and she did. And they did do those things. I'm not arguing. If you can change them, please do it. If not, meanwhile, work on your mind. It's not uncomplicated, but it's the hardest job we'll do. Don't underestimate how difficult it is. Because of habit, that's all. Because of habit, you know. So when we can begin to get the right approach that Buddha's telling us, we'll start to have compassion for ourselves. It'll start to be kindness to ourselves. It's like, you know, you're like you've been eating wrong for 27 years and you're addicted to all the rubbish food and you wonder why you get arthritis and you wonder why you've got too many kilos on your body. And finally, you, you have to, you realize the suffering. You finally realize you're sick of the suffering. It's exactly like that exactly like that you're finally sick of the suffering you don't blame anybody you just decide i'm sick of this i'm going to change that's the attitude we have to have you know? then it's like compassion for ourselves but it's only when we start to understand this it's only when we dig deep into our mind and to see the pain that our own delusions are causing us that we can then look and see that crazy guy kicking the dog then you can have compassion. But that's the point. The compassion is not this. We have sentimental compassion, like childish compassion, and compassion based on attachment. 
So when you understand that anger causes you suffering and then you know why when anything you've ever done, even if only a half a dozen in your life have, that you've done to harm others, you know it's coming from your, your anger, your attachment, your jealousy, your pride, your arrogance, your low self-esteem. That's why you harm anybody. So when you know the little bit of harm that you have done based on your delusions, then you can look at another person harming somebody else and you will understand them. And then you will know, oh my God, that poor guy, he's so suffering. But that doesn't mean you get him off the hook because that's what we think it means. Oh, the poor thing can't help it. No, you do everything you can to stop him from kicking the dog. But for his sake, not just the dogs. I mean, a mother who's got a crack, a wacky kid can see this, you know. Um, pedophiles have mothers, okay? She can see the beautiful, you know, the qualities of a little boy. She remembers him as a little boy whom she adored. And now she sees that he's doing this kind of, that he, so that, but she knows he's suffering. She knows his mind is tormented. And that's why he harms. But we don't want to think that because we think that gets him off the hook. We have to have punitive and vindictive and blame. It's so heavy, you know. Because of anger. It's because of anger. That's basically all rooted in anger, you know. I mean, it's a minefield because there's so many assumptions we have to change. It's not that easy to do this job. There's so many assumptions we have to chip away at and look at and own, you know. And it's only, like with Sunny, when she can change her own mind and become more sane and content that she continued to work on it because it was still unjust. It's not saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter that I've been wrongly accused. No, it matters terribly. But she had to keep her sanity and then she was able to work on it and she finally got free after 17 years of hard work, you know, proving her innocence. And But what if she doesn't prove her innocence? That's also the point. Many people never can prove their innocence. They die, you know, wrongly. But even then doesn't mean you still can't practice. If you're going to be executed for something you didn't do, you might as well have a happy mind about it. I'm not being sarcastic. For your sake. What's the point of being angry? just cause you to have a future suffering rebirth. You don't want that. So there's, there's logic to it, but it's hard to see the logic because the views we have now are so tied up with blame and guilt and anger and vindictive and it's quite heavy, you know, oh, quite heavy. So this gets us too to the point I was telling yesterday. Let's go into that. About trying to get equanimity at the very first step in the development of compassion, you know. Not the equanimity of your mind being stable, but equanimity on the compassion wing, which is the equanimity of having, seeing that enemy, friend and stranger are equal from their wish to be happy. That's the equanimity we're discussing here. So as soon as we say someone who's, you know, if we look at the guy who kicks the dog, the basis of our, our compassion for him, the basis of our compassion for him is that he's driven by anger, which, and we know from our own experience, it's tormenting. So we know his mind is tormented by anger. It's causing him suffering. And that's then due to habit, he kicks the dog. 
that's the very first level understanding and now the, the next one is this other one is this whole approach this, this is relating to karma then we think that we're trying to do equanimity let's say and let's say we just saw this guy yesterday and we use him as our object of aversion because we're mad at him for kicking our dog so we have him in the visualization and we have my beloved friend on the left and then we have the stranger on the right and i'm trying to see how my beloved friend wants to be happy but so does that guy the evil guy the guy who kicked the dog whom i'm angry with so then i say to myself well he is just like my beloved friend he also wants to be happy but the first instinct i'll have because i'm angry with him is but excuse me rabina he doesn't deserve to be happy well let's look at that this is really such an intense assumption there's many levels of assumption wrapped into that word deserve so heavy you know it's so so heavy all of our anger and attachment is based on deserve you know that's why in the first place when i love my friend i have i want my friend to be happy because as far as i'm concerned listen to this they deserve it because they're kind to me that's the basis of any why we love anybody i will want you to be happy only because you deserve it because you want me to be happy if you do what my attachment wants then you deserve my love so our love and compassion are totally driven by deserve so who deserves it innocent victims or people who are kind to me that's it think about it but this is not logical at all for the buddha it's completely illogical just look at deserve so that means we've got to understand this back into high school back in the middle scope when we start to become our own therapists we've got to understand attachment and aversion these words are so simple for us you know they think, we think they're so boring you don't like i said you don't go to your therapist and say oh, i've got a bit of anger today she's not interested in boring old anger she wants you to be psychotic you know and then she'll help you i'm not being sarcastic please get my point oh i got a bit of attachment i felt guilty today i mean it's not enough to go to a therapist we have to go when you want to kill somebody sort of so what does deserve what is it what does deserve got to do with anger and attachment think about it and this is bringing in karma okay so as we know buddha's view of the universe the, it's a natural law that runs the universe it's just how it is he didn't make it up he saw it he's observed it which is that everything that happens every millisecond or whatever happens to any sentient being second by second by second the ant the dog the monkey the rat the worm the person on death row the person winning a million dollars whatever it might be that result is the result of an action that person did it could it's sort of like if you see a rose growing there you have to know the seed was planted there you can't look around going who put a rose in my garden huh not like that it's in your garden so the seed is there so you deserve the rose in that sense deserve now so okay so i'm jumping a bit so okay so karma is that everything that ever happens is the fruit of an action each that being did and everything we do say and think now produces us so seeds that will produce our future so we are our own creators dalai lama calls karma like self-creation it's a great way of putting it there's no conspiracy theory out there's no conspiracy theory of there's somebody out there running the show not like that there's no view like that in buddhism and there's a natural law it's just the way it is so now because we have the view 
either God made us or mummy and daddy. They're the two options. In, in religion, the usual creator religions, the main religions we know about that seem to predominate in the world, you know, the, the, Arab, 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 the Arab religions, really, Christianity, they all start in the same place. Look at that little spot called Israel. Look at the dramas there, you know, all the, the suffering from 2,000 years of their arguments and fights, the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians. Look at them. This piece of land so tiny, you can run across Israel without getting tired, so small. The view is that God made you. Now that means God's God's responsible. Now, but we do, but we did, we do not like to blame God, do we? That's not heavy. We would not want that. The Italians do. The Argentinians do. I've heard some Italian got upset with me. We keep telling, quoting that. The Italians. I mean, Lama Yeshi when he was in went to visit um, his friend Geshi Jampagiazzo. Geshi Jampagiazzo, yeah, one of his friends who taught the master's program for years in Institute Lama Sankarpa in, in, in Italy. And, and he was in the hospital and Lama Yeshi was visiting him. This is in the late 70s, early 80s. And the Italian boys were translating what the Italian men in the ward were saying about God. They say that God's a pig. I mean, I mean, I was a Catholic. We would never say one bad word about God. I mean, we were Irish Catholics. We never said one bad word about God, you know, no way. Or not maybe Irish, something English. I don't remember my mother and father. My father wasn't Catholic. We'd never criticize God. You never say a word against God. Our lady's a whore. Of course, our lady's a whore, isn't she? You know, it's typical men, isn't it? If you're naughty, you're a female, you're a whore. Anyway, um, you don't like to blame God, though. But we love to blame mummy and daddy because that's the other option, isn't it? If you're materialist, if your philosophical materialism is your view of the world, mummy and daddy, mostly mummy, daddy, daddies seem to get off the hook. Mummies are the blame. We all know that. And that's who who started all this philosophy? Who started all this psychology? All these clever white boys, isn't it? All these clever, you know, I always joke. I'm, I joke now, it's true. It really is true, though. Only now are people beginning to identify a group called white men. I'm sorry, you white boys. You've been girls in the past. Don't worry about it. But we've never, we've never identified a group called white men because white men means person. Everybody else is a group. Everybody else is not a white man. You're, you're black. You're female. You know, the, but now we're finally discovering, we're finally identifying a group called white men. And they're starting to realize that they're the cause of all the problems. Sorry, white boys. Anyway, it's just my joke here, but it's true. It's really true. Anyway, the thing is, I'm going raving on a bit here, aren't I? Okay. So we do not like to blame, but look at, we don't like to, to blame God, but we love to blame mummy. And that the point is that view is entrenched in our scientific views, in our psychological views, that I am made by mummy and daddy, isn't it? I'm made by them. In other words, they have sex and then their gene, their eggs and their sperms come together. And then as a result of that, Rabina pops out. So Rabina is the product. She is the creation of mummy and daddy. So obviously, if I come from mummy and daddy, and you want to find the cause of a problem, you go back to the source, don't you? It's logical. Of course you do. So you go back to mummy and daddy. And then if we really want to work hard, we're going to look into the brains and we'll go back to mummy and daddy and grandma, grandpa, and then track, track back to the monkeys. That's our philosophy. That's our science. That's our psychology. So, of course, that view is mixed with the view of an innocent victim. We, we say and we joke, but we mean it. I didn't ask to get born. It's not my fault, we say. We say it as a joke, but it's literally true. 
And that's how ego feels. It wants to be off the hook. And you can be off the hook because look what your mother did. Look at your genes, your DNA, your chemicals. Look what the Catholic nuns did. Look what the priest did to me. We will find all these reasons out there of the bad things that happened to us. And they did happen. Buddha doesn't argue with that. But as Lama Zoba says, the vast majority of all humans on the planet have absolutely no idea that what goes on in their mind plays any role at all in their lives. And that's exactly how we think. We think, oh, the mind is just the mind. It's only in the mind. It doesn't matter what the mind does. It's only in the mind, we'll say. It's not real. We actually don't think what goes on in the mind plays any role in our lives. This is like literally schizophrenic. Because we don't look there. We only look out there. And we do look here. It's because of that out there. That's the view we have. And the, and the thing is, don't blame, you know, it's like, don't blame, your, like I said, your Catholic mummy or your Jewish mummy for this. This is the view of ego. Because who else, who has articulated these views? The neuroscientists, the psychologists, the, 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 the Freuds and the people. And who are they? They're people like us who have these views already. We came into this life with these views. And then we articulate them as laws. Well, Buddha's arguing with these. He says, we don't see the whole picture. So, if we look at the Four Noble Truths and we see the first one, there's, there is suffering. There's different levels. We discussed two already. The first one is when the bad things happen. And the second is suffering of change, which is when the good things happen. But it's a subtle, more nuanced level of suffering. Forget about the third kind. So now then we have to look at the causes. Because obviously, if you've got a problem, you first have to identify the problem. Before you can find a solution, you've got to first identify the problem. But then you must identify the causes. This is very logical. And that's the basis of our scientific view. And that, of course, is the basis of Buddha's view right here. So the problem is suffering. Let's say the punching in the nose from the boyfriend. That's caused suffering. So I want to know the causes, please, because I don't want to happen. Any, I don't want it to happen again. So, of course, I will blame the boyfriend and say because of this, and because of that. And if boyfriend goes off to therapy, he's going to see what made him do it. So he's going to see what mummy did to him, what daddy did to him and whatever happened to him, because he wants to get off the hook, too. And then I might forgive him if he tries to change. But it's all very difficult. because It's fraught with his anger and blame and not fair and getting off the hook. It's very intense, you know. So the thing is that we're using the view of karma. And the view of the Buddha's view, the two causes of suffering, there are two main causes. One is karma, past action that I did. Two, the second cause, which is subsumed, the two subsumed to this one, is the delusion that drove that action. So in the case of being harmed by another, speaking simplistically, one of the kinds of karma that happens is called experiences similar to the cause. So there's a boyfriend punching me. So it's a karma coming back, basically. It's an action, you know, it's the result of an action that I did in the past. And karma is also personal. So, you know, we've got some history with that boyfriend. But it's exactly the same with happiness. Because the boyfriend's kind to me. Why are you happy, Rabin? Oh, the boyfriend's so kind to me. So I'm blaming him for the happiness as well, aren't I? But the same as this. For the Buddha, there are two causes of that. One is the past action of my being virtuous by being kind. And two, driven by a virtue in my mind. So in both cases, the Buddha's saying that we are the main cause. Yes, they play a role. The kindness is a secondary cause. And it's, but the crucial point is why even the kindness happens and why even the punch happens. They are also due to me. I create, I cause those to happen. So we are the boss. We are the cause. So from this point of view, then using the word deserve, which is not even a word in Tibetan, I don't think. We use it. So it's got a heavy meaning. We deserve the happiness. And we deserve the suffering. 
but it's too heavy to hear it because we never talk about the happiness. I've never yet had, and I always say this and it's still true, I've never yet in all these years ever had a person ask me the question. Rabina, why do good things happen? We don't care. what You know why? This is the point I'm getting to. You know why we never ask? Because we assume that we deserve it. So when a good thing happens, we just take it for granted. We don't go, wow, why did that happen? That's amazing. No, we just give me more, please, because we're greedy. And that's the, now I'm getting to the point, that's the assumption of attachment. Attachment is this primordially deep. We should have compassion. Don't put just, I'm not criticizing us. We should be having compassion for ourselves as we hear this analysis. Attachment is this primordial assumption that I must only get the good things. Only good things should happen. And we assume, and this is the point, we assume we only deserve good things. And that means when we don't get the good things and anger arises, the main pain of anger is the assumption that how dare that happen? I don't deserve it. So this deserve is at the root of our problem. The attachment is this junkie in us that assumes I only deserve the good. So when the good happens, we take it for granted. So you check your day to day, you people, whether it's, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning in Sydney or, you know, here at six o'clock in the evening in, in New Mexico. As long as it's throughout a day that good things happen. So throughout my day to day, nothing ba much bad has happened. Okay, I dropped a nice thing. I dropped a glass haven't had any particular pain in my body, the weather's been particularly fine, the food was fairly tasty, things have gone according to plan. So what happens, so if you count as many moments as I've had since I got up this morning, up until now, you know, there's a lot of moments, thousands of them, and every one of the moments that will be called me getting what attachment wants, which is nice things happening, you take them for granted. Not only take them for granted, but there's an assumption that they'd better keep happening. And that's the degree to which we have attachment that assumes we only deserve the good is the degree to which we are shocked when the bad happens. And that's the beginning of, the, of anger. How, and what's anger? How dare that happen? I don't deserve it. This is in our bones, people. This is stuff that's really hard to unpack, you know. So these are philosophical viewpoints, but they're completely programmed within us, not from mummy and daddy and grandpa and grandma and the bloody monkeys, from our own past. Buddha goes back into the past as well, but our own past, that's the big difference. That's the big difference between Buddha and, and, and the scientists. The scientists go back to the past of the family, the physical past. Buddha goes to the mental past, your own baby. I deserve good things. Now, what is the illogic of this? No, listen to this. This is the point. You look in your garden and you see weeds. You don't say, and hear the point, it's your garden. This is a crucial point. You look in your garden. You do not say, who put weeds in my garden? I don't deserve weeds. You do not say that. No matter how bad the weeds are. Why? It's so logical because you know it's your garden, they're your weeds. 
you planted them or you didn't pull them out, whatever. So you take, you know, that's true. You would never say who put weeds in my garden because that's how we say now, who did it to me? Where's the blame? Now the same with happiness. You don't look in your bank and go, why are there no dollars in my bank? I deserve dollars. You absolutely do not say that because you know it's your bank account. So that means whatever's in your garden, quote unquote, you deserve it. I don't want to use that word even, but it's, such, it's just a logic. It's your garden, They're your weeds, babe. And that money is the lack of money in your bank. That's yours too. So that's the view of karma. So then Alama Zopa says, everything that appears to us, every second of the day, every tiny good thing that's happened to me today, everything that's happened well, that everything has come together, the food was tasty, the thing was nice, this was that, the weather was good. It's a simple, simple thing we don't even count. These are the fruit of a virtue of my past actions. They're the fruit of my past virtue. So every second you should be blissing out with like winning a million dollars a second. This is unbelievable. I can't believe my past virtue is still ripening. Amazing. And you would never take it for granted. Just like you look in your garden and you see it full of veggies and roses. You would never sit back and just go, oh, vegetables and eat them up greedily. I hope that someone else has got to put more veggies in for you. No, you know they're your veggies. You know you planted them. And if you know if you use up every damn cauliflower, you better plant some more cauliflowers. So every second you're on the case about karma, you rejoice every second that things are going beautifully and you remember it's the fruit of your own past virtue and you keep creating more virtue. You keep planting more cauliflowers. That's the view. And then when the bad things happen, you own them too. So start practicing owning the good things, people, okay? Because there's plenty of good in our lives. but We never notice it. We just take it for granted, greedily grasping at it and demanding more, you know, because I deserve good things the hubris of it. And that's why we suffer. So the degree of our attachment of expecting happiness is the degree of the, of the anger when it doesn't happen. Okay, I've been chatting for an hour. About time you ask me some questions, people. This is the analysis we've got to do, you know. This is this is my own kind of personal analysis from all my own thinking as I'm going along, having to speak about this stuff to you people. I'm talking to myself, aren't I? You know, this is the analysis I come up with. This is Buddhist teachings. Yes, Maddie. Yes, thank you, Baron Rorina. Um, I as many people know, I've been I've been diagnosed with as being crazy for most of my life. And it okay. seems like the people that I care about pop into my life only when I'm doing well with when, with concern for me. And I know that that's my karma, but do I well, just I'm take more, it with a Maddie, I'm already losing you. I'm lost. I'm already losing you, Maddie. What's, what's your point, honey? I'm lost already. What's my your point, point is, is it, is it, so I'm just supposed to, do I just take that as a grain of salt and keep on strolling through? I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. Come I mean, do, I don't take it. I don't take it. Basis. I don't know what there's too many as Maddie, I, there's too many assumptions in what you're saying. I can't get hold of it. Can you bring it down to earth? What's your point? Um, like when I'm, when I'm, it's like when I'm doing well, people show up. But I don't even understand what do you mean by show up. What do you mean by this, Maddie? There's too many assumptions in what you're saying, darling. I really, I think I want you to think about it for a second. They call please. my loved ones. People call my loved Maddie, ones, say, hey, Maddie, Maddie's, Maddie. Maddie's going crazy. Maddie's losing her mind. She's doing too well. And it doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I'm looking, I just, Maddie. I think, Maddie, you've got to stop. Okay. You're completely confusing me. There's so many layers of assumptions in what you're saying. 
I can't even hear it. So I'd like you to relax about it and think about it and come up later on with another question because that's just too much for my mind. Sorry, be blunt. Sorry. Maddie's my dear friend. I know Maddie for a long time and it's okay. I'm allowed to talk to her like this. Lou had a question as well, or he put his hand off. Maybe he doesn't want a question after all. He's changed his mind. Look. Oh, by the way, Christina, did you did you, did you succeed? Are you going to the Olympics? And uh, no, I'm not going to. Oh, you missed out. <laughs> oh, she was training. Yeah, I, missed, I went to the qualification. Yeah. She didn't. Uh, it's okay. Anything. I'm going to the World Championships later on this year. So. I'm but you, did you, you mean you didn't pass or something? What happened? You you, you failed. No, I'm yeah. just not being nasty. She was. Yeah, so I didn't. She's karate. She's karate. She went all over the world doing all these competitions, trying to trying to um, qualify for the Olympics. What happened? Just tell us briefly. Yeah. Um, well, I went to Paris for the qualifying event, but I didn't manage to to qualify for the Olympics. So you missed, but you feel okay about it. Yep. It's been a good experience. Yeah, good, good experience. I, well yeah. done. Well Thank done, Christine. I'm very happy. So who's got other questions? Any other questions? Yes, Francis. And yes, Victoria. Go, Francis, and then Victoria. Uh, okay, can you hear me, Rabina? I can, darling. Okay, my question continues from yesterday about my um, my anger in not being able to circulate some information. But now I do. Okay, anger that you're not getting what, that attachment is not getting what it wants. Call it directly for what it is. doesn't matter what the external event is. Yes. Your yes. anger is there because your attachment is not getting what it wants. Because if it was only compassion, you wouldn't have anger. So that's that's a given, isn't it? So yes. the question is? My question is, is that I can, I, I, I think now after listening to your last uh, half hour, that I can change that anger into compassion and still do the thing that I think is informative to people. Of course, if you, if you, this is the whole point, Francis, whatever you try to do, there's only two reasons to do it. One is to help you develop your own qualities. And second is to help others. So the motivation is what counts. And then you won't get distressed. And if they don't listen to you and you don't succeed, you won't lose your bloody mind. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Got so, it. Okay. Good. Okay. Toria. <laughs> Hello, sweetheart. Happy to see you. Wonderful to see you too, Venerable Rubina, and thank you yeah. so much for the teachings. Yeah. Can you please unpack for me? We've been up in the hills post some devastating storms that happened back um, on the 9th of June in the Dandenongs. We've been helping people up there, many of what which have... What happened, darling? Storm. Oh, it was absolutely shocking. Massive. It was like they're describing it as actually um, as an emergency or actually a cataclysmic storm mm -hmm. on the 9th of June. So yeah. houses were literally destroyed by, you know, those enormous old trees up there? Yes, houses were yeah. Houses chopped in half, people caught in there. And miraculously, no one actually got hurt. So we have no idea because if you go up there, it looks like a bomb's gone off. It's right. absolutely exactly. shocking. So people yep. were without power and water for over four oh. weeks. Right. So really, really difficult. So, you know, I, with the uh, volunteer organisation I, I volunteer with, we took food up there for the last three weeks and right. talking with the people, we were doing a food relief community sort of um, action group and speaking with a lot of the survivors. Can you please unpack for me the idea about survivor guilt? Because we were speaking to people who genuinely showed remorse at the fact that their house wasn't damaged, their neighbours did. Is that an expression of compassion or what is that? No, it's not. It's completely 
tragically neurotic, you know. In other words, because you see, because we, I would put it this way, using the Buddhist analysis, because we think these things are random, don't we? I mean, if we had real faith in God, if they had faith in God, they wouldn't feel that. They would know that whatever happened was God's will. Do you understand what I'm saying here, first of all, Victoria? And I find that quite a reasonable philosophy. I don't accept it, but that at least will, you know, why things are happening. But in our world, being mostly materialist, I'm not using that sarcastically, it's a philosophy. We don't actually have explanations for why things happen. Do you see what I'm trying to say? We Now, we do have explanations externally, the weather this and the weather that, but we don't have the, and this is a really major point, we don't have the answer to the question, but why did it happen to me? Or equally, why did it not happen to me? That's why we have guilt, because we just think it's not fair. We think right the way we are with no explanation, we think happiness and suffering are just like good luck and bad luck. It's like winning the lottery. It's just no one has an explanation. So then then if you if you have if you don't have a bad thing happen and all your other friends did, then you feel like, you know, you feel embarrassed, really, because, you know, mm. somehow, how come you didn't get harm? You know, we so it's really to do also, more deeply, I would suggest, it's to do with this deepest attachment that we talked about yesterday, which is the attachment to reputation, because it's sort of like you're embarrassed that you're sitting there with your house intact, and people are going to be angry with you, and jealous of you, and resentful of you, and then you get guilt, because, you, you know, that's what's behind it, I'd say. It's, a, it's guilt, and you're embarrassed because you think people are going to criticize you. You don't want to be criticized because you, you know you didn't do anything wrong, but it's not my fault. I can't change the weather. So when we twist it around and turn it against ourselves. But if Thank we had you. the view of karma, we would know why it happened and we would have compassion and we would happily use our resources to help others. And then even if people were angry at us and we didn't, that our house didn't fall down, we would be okay with it because we understood karma. Do you understand? Thank you. That makes complete sense because they, yeah. you could actually almost see them physically feeling like they're on the outer. There was the group That's that right. were all suffering exactly. together and they were like, we're okay, but we can't That's be a right. part of that group. That makes complete exactly. sense. Thanks so much. Exactly. That's right. And then, and it's true because people might be resentful of them. How come you didn't, your house didn't fall down? <laughs> you don't know what my suffering's like. That's mm. true. That's really nerve wracking for us, but it's rooted in attachment to reputation. It's rooted in fearful that people won't like us, therefore. And it's rooted because we don't know why things happen. It all just seems random. And that's why mm. we have guilt. And then that's why we have so much. I mean, we, and then we get confused, you know. Mm. It's really true. It's very interesting, Victoria. Does it make mm, sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Clarity, yeah. really clear. Thank Good. you. Yes. Yes, people. Talk to me, sweethearts. Uh, Venerable Rabina, Christopher is asking for some clarification around the junior school, high school, university. Okay. Good, good. Okay, uh, go so, quick. Yeah, Christopher's asking um, if junior school is being ethical and not harming and university is a compassion wing, then is high school the working on our own minds? Precisely. That's exactly right. So the whole point behind this, the premise of this, uh, of this structure, given that we're all driven by delusions and we're all in samsara and we're suffering and we are trying to get rid of suffering, the very first step is, well, at least Buddha says, and given that everybody, everything we think and do today produces our suffering, the very first step is, well, then, honey child, honey child, stop. At least first, right now, as Lama Zopa says, the very first practice right now, this second, is at least stop causing 
future sufferings. That's the point. It's like you go to the doctor, you got di- you know, you got you've got diabetes. The first thing is she doesn't start giving you medicines to fix your diabetes while you continue to eat sugar. The first thing is stop eating sugar. So the very first level of practice is stop causing future suffering. And that happens to be the heaviest level of suffering is when you get harmed and lied to and stolen from and killed and raped, then that's because you have done those actions. So that that level, you first control your body and speech and stop doing the actions that harm others. And that's the main practice there, the action of disciplining your body and speech, disciplining the servants of your mind, because they're the driver, but it's too difficult to look into the mind first. So you first stop causing the future suffering. So you have ethics, live in vows, and purify your negative karma. Now you've got some space to go to the next level, so-called high school, and now you've got the luxury to look into the what drives the body and speech, and that's your mind. That's when you start to become a Buddhist. You become your own therapist. That's when the real work happens. But you've got to calm the servants of the mind down first. Then on the basis of this, you get renunciation, you get joy, you become more fulfilled, you get you become more happy, you become less neurotic, and now you can start to see you're in the same boat. Everybody's in the same boat. Now what can I do for them? That makes sense, Christopher? Yes, thank you so much. Good, good, good. Go, any anything more there, Amy? Uh, there's nothing else here in the chat. No. Okay. Okay. I have a Anybody? question. Yes, Lauren, sweetheart. Could you please clarify um, the way we're meant to see the the difference between the anger of the man who kicked his dog versus um, Venerable Roger, I think it was, you said, who uh, Lama Zopa said, good, the dirt has to come out. The difference between like, because I understand having compassion for the man who kicked his dog, but in Roger's case, it's not compassion that we're having, but rather we're celebrating it because he sees his anger. Okay. Is that the difference between the angers? There's a massive difference, Lauren. And this is what we have to understand. So let's just say, you know, I'm not practicing. I'm not conscious. And I've got a boyfriend. Christopher's my boyfriend and he's mean to me. And I come to you, my friend, and I moan and complain about Christopher. I'm angry. I'm resentful. How dare he? Look what he did. And you're trying to support me. You colluded my rubbish. Yes, I know, Rabin. I can't imagine how you put up with him. Then what am I doing? But I'm practicing anger. I'm doing a really good job of practicing anger. That's anger. Now, if I start to practice and my tendency is anger anyway, but I'm practicing becoming conscious and I'm practicing not saying angry words, then it's going to be like a violent storm inside me because it's suddenly you're starting to change it, you know? So then I'm going to come to you now and I'm going to be in tears. I'm going to be, and I'm going to be raging on. But the reason I'm talking to you now is because I'm trying to work on my anger and you are helping me see it. Then that is good. That's not quote unquote being angry. That that's when the dirt is coming out and we absolutely have to see the difference but we're so scared of our delusions we think as soon as they pop up we're getting worse but we're not the dirt is coming out we've got to see the difference not to be scared of it do you understand Great. understood thank you good yes so important one lauren i tell you what uh, dave, dave has a question dave good dave talk to me sweetheart hi Rabina. um i'm sort of painting this here and what you're saying in my own head and i just want to check something with you i understand karma you know why is it happening you know at the previous negative actions would you agree or am i getting it right that the uh, apparent in inverted commas randomness of say a negative karma happening is because um 
either the duration of a very small seed, it's had a very long time to become a very big seed, and that without the actual um, conditions being right for that seed to ripen at that specific moment in time, that's why on one day of the week, it appears that X happened, but then the, later in the week, because the conditions haven't been right for that seed to ripen, so I was just listening to the people about, like with the storms, why have some people got smashed house or burnt down house in the bushfire and others haven't? Because they've had a negative seed in the past and the conditions for that seed have ha happened to because have ripened at that exactly time for that first. Right, of course, and it's exactly yeah. the same as happiness. It's exactly yeah. the same. In other words, so you could argue in the case, let's just use the, use the example of the, of the houses falling down. Or whatever. And that's a good example of the people in Miami, you know. I mean, I just read one story in the New York Times about somebody who came home with his mum at 1 a.m. and they're in the kitchen and they feel something rocking and they go downstairs and they walk out the building and then the building collapses. So, they were, so that for them, so each of those cases, it's not just a random event. It looks random to us if we don't have the view yeah. of karma. But equally, by the way, I like to say this example. If you don't know botany, Dave, you it just looks random why one day a rose will pop up because you don't know the, the causes. It just seems random because yeah. we don't understand yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. what's getting what i'm getting at is this the, let's say for example the people let's say say the people in the miami environment where their their, their houses all the condos collapsed and they all died then that's the fruit of a very particularly that's a that's a that's a heavy very heavy it was a very intense experience their bodies have been turned into dust it was so violent you know that those people who died they that was the result of a past killing the experience similar to the cause there are four kinds of karma one is a type of rebirth one is within a rebirth is is a tendency to keep doing it the experience of having it done to you and then there's also the environmental result so in the case of the people in miami they're they're dying they're dying that's the complete that's a, that's the the experience similar to the cause of a past action of killing the people who escaped did not have the karma to die because in their case there was no karma of killing at that moment ready to ripen so they're the ones who walked out the door or another example one little boy 15 not little little 15 year old boy one of the few people who was found he had the karma to be harmed he had the karma for his house to collapse he had the karma for his mummy to die but he didn't have the karma because of past killing for himself to die so there's logic to all of this so those people in the trees exactly those who had the karma from palming in the past they lost their property they you know they didn't die but it was due to past harming but the ones whose house state was saved you know and it's even the same i mean i always tell a story this like it's like a miracle one tibetan nun i met 20 young woman in Kathmandu at a hospital i was at she was in an i think i mentioned this story she was in a, in a helicopter crash in the middle of the forest in Nepal, in the winter. So that the, and, and it smashed to smithereens. Everybody was completely annihilated, but she fell into a tree and then landed on the ground. Her skirt was in the tree. She said, I saw my skirt in the tree. Every bone was broken, but she had her tights on. She put her hand out. There was her telephone with a line and she rang her daddy and they found her 10 hours later. That's not just like a miracle. I mean, the Buddhas could be involved. She didn't have the karma to die.
This is the logic of seeds and fruits, you know. It's not like good luck or bad luck or random or the universe or mysterious. It's a natural law. And that's where, like I was saying to, you know, said to Victoria, when you have that view, you delight that you had the virtuous karma not to be harmed. And then you utilize that and you'll be a benefit to others, you know. So, yeah, exactly what you say. The, all the conditions don't come together. But if the, if the karma is there to die, no matter what happens, it will ripen. So equally, another friend went to Los Angeles to help his daddy die of cancer. And then he got better. And they literally were having a party one evening celebrating his cancer, you know, remission. Well, the next day he died of a heart attack. So in other words, the karma to die was so strong, it didn't matter what the condition was. The condition would happen one way or another. But if you don't have the karma to die, no matter what, you can even try to kill somebody, you, they're not going to die. It seems kind of abstract and strange, but it's, it, when we understand this, it really explains things to us, you know. And that's the same with good things, Dave. It's exactly the same with good things. You can have a person working 80 hours a week and they never can make ends meet. Somebody else has to just blink at money and they get rich because one has lack of generosity karma and one has generosity karma, you know. Do you understand? Yeah. We've really got Falls to think beautifully. What, darling? Thank you. Okay, good. That's great. Falls Anybody into else? place beautifully. Thank you. Good, 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 good. What else, people? Any other questions? Christine looks like he's got a question. No? You got a question, darling? Um, no. Yeah, I was thinking about something um, as people were talking. Um, yeah, yeah. So all of these things that are happening, whether they're good or bad, um, our job as a practitioner is to bring all of it onto the path. So just like, no matter what happens, to just persevere. That's it. That's the one thing. That's one thing. But more than that, of course, there's more than that. But what's, what's the point behind that particular point you're making? I mean, because um, more than that, you learn from it. It's like you've got to not just, you take it into the path by understanding it is due to your past actions. And then if it's negative, you're delighted because you clean, you just finished it, the dirt's coming out. But if it's positive, like I said before, you never waste it, not one second. You look at that garden every day, you see all the veggies, you never take them for granted. You always rejoice in your past virtue and you keep sowing more seeds. That's the real attitude. And that means you, so you, you, you delight the suffering is rising because you just got rid of that suffering. And you are also delighted to get the good stuff, but you keep creating more. You learn from it. It's a learning experience. Do you understand? It's like yeah. bottom, you learn, I mean, like you and your karate, you learn every single time when you won, when you didn't win, every bit of it was part of you becoming a better karate person. You learned from it. You didn't take it for granted. You didn't have the hubris and the arrogance of aren't I so good. You didn't have the depression and despair of a disaster. Everything you did, whether you won or not, you learn from it. It's grist for the mill. It's all learning and you get better and better at karate. That's exactly the view. Thank you. You understand? Yeah. You don't waste any of it. Yes, Christopher. Um, okay, so I have a question about purification process then and, and the seeds of karma. So um, do, does the purification, like the Vajrasattva practice, does it get rid of that seed or does it transmute like a negative karmic seed into like a positive result? Like is the seed gone or is it the, the result that's changed? Good point. I think I think the analogy, I think it's, no, I think it's um, every time you do purification, you're putting atomic bombs, 
you're regretting consciously the killing. You then have compassion for those you harmed. Then you do the practice and then you vow not to do it again. So there's a series of things happening mentally and you're basically putting atomic bombs under the tendency in general to be angry as well as trying to purify the root of it, which is the seed. But you don't, the seed doesn't come out immediately because the seeds are very deep. So you're weakening the seeds and you're purifying the tendency to be angry. So you're programming your mind in, you know, you're programming your mind in not being angry as well as getting to the root of it or killing and getting to the root of it and, and um, yeah, and, and trying to weaken the seeds. Eventually when you realize emptiness is when you finally pull out the seeds, not until then. So it's a constant process of chipping away at it. But, you know, particular practices like Vajrasattva are very powerful. A kind of, it's putting, you know, you can put it, you can chip away very gently at that big tree or you can put some really strong effort into it. And the purification practice is said to be very powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah. So really looking, it's well, like reprogramming. What, darling? I'm so so it's, it's it's very much like just reprogramming our habits. That that it's we start there, and then once we've made progress, and we sort of blow them up and uh, uh, realize emptiness, that's when the actual. There's two things they talk about. There are the seeds that are there, the karmic seeds that you've planted which then bring the habit. So you're doing two things. You're trying to get to the root of it and uproot the seeds finally. So there's no longer any karmic seed to kill at all. And second, you're, you're weakening the tendency. The final thing is to get to the root. And when you've realized emptiness, then you bypass the habit and you go straight to the root and you pull out the seed and you cannot kill anymore. Okay. So it's weakening the tendencies so you don't sow more seeds and it's getting to the root of the seeds themselves, something like that, I'd say. And so what? You, and in a way, it's like pulling out the weeds. Every time you pull out the weeds, that's a very specific practice, but you're giving space for the virtues to grow. Do you understand? Okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Someone else? We have no time for a break. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Good, sweetheart. Um, Who's Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for your teaching. Um, I'm just, I've been struggling a bit with indecisiveness and working out what the best decision to, to make is. Um, and I'm aware, I think that the indecisiveness is coming from a lack of self-confidence and yes. feeling that if I make a decision, it's based upon or my afflictions and, and um, negative emotions. Will be yeah. making that decision, and I don't want to make that decision, so I kind of I just don't do anything. I understand. And, yeah, wondering how to kind of work through that, and I. Well, speaking yeah. that, there's a whole bunch of things in there, you know, because there you are. Obviously, you're you're trying to practice, and you're trying to be a good girl. And the thing is, because you're trying to be a good girl, you're, you're trying to be such a good girl, you're afraid of making a mistake. And you've got to have it. We've got to have some courage sometimes, you know. I mean, the fact is, you might, you know, it's like. So, okay. I mean, is this decision, I don't, I don't want to be too personal, but is this decision like a, a life-changing decision, like going to France to live for 10 years, or is it just going to another house, or, I mean, is it just something minor or major? I don't need to know uh, the details. So, yeah, I'm, it's deciding where, I, I'm a junior doctor at the moment, and I'm deciding oh, again, where to go. Sorry, I didn't um, hear you. Um, I'm a junior doctor. Uh, oh, okay, good. Medical okay, good. And so I'm deciding where to do my GP practice, which was a big decision to do GP, but now I'm trying to decide what state to do that in. 
And I'm not, yeah. Well, that's I'm just, the, the decision is whether you go to Queensland or the Northern Territory or Hobart or something. Yeah, yeah, or Victoria. So, okay, so then basically, then are some options are coming to you? Are they get? Are you getting some offers or how do you, how does it work? You get well, offers? Well, I sat on an exam and so then based upon that exam, we get put on a bell curve. So, so really so I can't hear you so well. your voice. Your voice is a bit kind of wobbly. Get closer to the mic, perhaps. Better? That's much better. I'm much better. sorry, just because I have my Bluetooth speaker on. Um, so I may, I, I sat an exam about a month ago and then depending on how I go in that exam, like we get put on a, um, like a bell curve and get given a kind of grade. And so if I go well, I'll be able to go to the competitive places like Melbourne and Sydney and things like that. And if I don't, I'll go like rural, regional. So yes. it kind of is, I find out in five days, like what I got. But right. yeah, so... And but I'm just my thinking, sense is, from what you were saying, then Rebecca, it's got not the choice is got not up to you. You just got to accept what happens. You don't have to make a choice. I mean, I can't yeah. see here. What what's the doubt coming about? Where's the doubt coming in? Where's the where's the well, yeah? Because I still need to apply for a certain place, and I hopefully will be able to. Because getting into GP training isn't that hard. So I probably will have a smorgasbord. I'm I'm think I'm hopeful. But I'm also like not wanting to have any decisions to make because I don't know what decision to make. And, oh, and okay, okay. So listen, darling, I tell you what, this is, might sound a bit, this is something I say to people all the time. And it's so, if you have the understanding of karma, this is very, very powerful. But it's very, it, it takes courage to think it as well. I remember His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, always aspire to do what is most beneficial. And if you can, long-term, better than short-term. Now, that, of course, means enlightenment. But even if you're thinking of your career as a doctor, if you could think that way, then the thing is about this, though, this is the point. There's various points. When we hear that, we then think, but I don't know what's most beneficial. Well, honey, that's the point. You don't know what's most beneficial. So this is not like taking and chewing it like a dog with a bone. Every day you, you do all your things. You do your exam. You allow all these things to happen. You see where you are on the bell curve. You just ex let the, the, ex the external things take care of themselves. Meanwhile, every day you get up, you think, I don't know what is most beneficial. And it's a bit like, I always use this example, you're walking on a road and honey child, it's your road, it's your life. And whatever you meet on that road, you create it. It's your karmic appearance. So you're thinking, you're thinking, I'm just going to get up in the morning, do what I have to do, and I want to do what is most beneficial. So I don't know where the turn off on this road is, but I will just keep moving one step at a time every day, wanting to do what's most beneficial, always trying to have a pure motivation. Don't chew it like a dog with a bone. Don't kind of get all excited and, and think there's a cute turn off over there and you follow it and you'll get completely lost. Just keep moving. And this aspiration, this is my point, this aspiration sincerely in your heart every day, may I do what's most beneficial, that will ripen the causes, the karmic seeds you've planted in the past, that, and it will manifest in front of you that that will be the right decision. It will, you trust that process, okay? And then whatever yeah. that decision will be, it'll be the tough one, you will take it, because it's the yeah. most beneficial. It trains yeah, you that. Yeah. I feel that medicine, I'm kind of trying to take the safest option because I'm aware that like, there's so many things in Western medicine that I 
I, I'm disagreeing with and it's really a frustrating place to work in. So I'm like, I, I just kind of want a, a place that I can just be comfortable in and, and like practice the Dharma and, and I know, yeah, but that's, you're playing a bit safe there. If you really want to be the best doctor, that might end up wherever you are, like Christina says, you you use it on your path, darling. That's where, you know, maybe you're not even sure about, maybe in five years' time you'll turn into an acupuncturist. I don't know. But meanwhile, this is where you are at, Rebecca. Don't try to play safe. Be brave. Be sensible. Want to do what's most beneficial. And then wherever you're sent, you make the most of it, sweetheart. And then if it doesn't work, you can go somewhere else. It's not the end of the world. It's not, it's not like you, you, you can't back yeah. away. You just yeah. every day try and relax about it. Try not to think of all these options. If only this, if only that, maybe this. There's too many doubts in your mind. Tell yourself to shut up and just go one step at a time. Let the external process take care and really sincerely. And if you want to practice Dharma by saying, may I do what's most beneficial, that includes being in a place where you can have access to Dharma and the right thing will happen for you. You've got to trust this process. It's an internal process, Rebecca. Don't worry too much about the external. Let those things take care of themselves and the right decision will come you will be and every every point of the way you'll you'll use it on your path try not to speculate too much and do it like a dog with a bone okay yeah. and try not to and try not to try and hedge your bets and trying to take the easy options you know if it's a difficult one you pull up your sleeves and you work with it and it'll be all a good challenge for your mind you thank you Rebecca. yes i understand Thanks. good darling so you people, I'll see you in an hour. Thank you, everybody, precious ones.